Two factors prompted me to preach this sermon. First of all, we have several people that are graduating from high school, college, and graduate school. And I wonder, are you thinking theologically about what's next? If you're trying to land a job or apply for graduate school, why? And secondly, last week we lacked sufficient time to really apply the doctrine of the resurrection to our vocations. We are called to participate in the resurrected life of Jesus. We are called to anticipate the new creation to come. But how does that relate to your job? Christ came, into the, Christ came in the middle of human history, as we discovered last week. He did not come at the end as the Jews expected. Because Christ came at the middle of human history, we have an opportunity now to participate with him in his great restoration project. But again, how does that relate to your vocation? We often think of participation with Christ as merely giving the gospel out to our co-workers. And that's good. But few Christians think about their vocation itself as part of the participation. They view their jobs as a kind of necessary evil that we have to engage in so we have an opportunity to tell someone about the gospel. Well, tell someone about the gospel, sure. But is your job really a necessary evil? That's the assumption that I want to test today. In fact, I really do wonder how good a witness you can be for the Creator if, in fact, you view your labor in His creation in such dismal terms. Let's really make sure this morning that the resurrection has just properly shaped our outlook on our vocations. That's what I'd like to do today. And to really get a proper perspective, we've got to begin at the beginning. We've got to go all the way back to Genesis 1. All right, so let's turn to Genesis 1, and let's try to get a right perspective on our callings. In Genesis 1, we are entering an unfallen world. There is no curse, disease, accounting fraud, collapsing bridges, or airplanes tumbling from the sky. But there is work. At the end of the creation week, God creates something unique. He produces after His own kind. Verse 26, Then God said, You guys are still turning. Are you having trouble finding Genesis 1? It's right there at the beginning. <laughs> okay. 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 All right, there's probably, you know, table of contents and all that. All right. Verse 26. You guys are throwing me off. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Man is, in fact, more like God than anything else that God made. And God, of course, will one day add humanity to himself in the virginal conception. And he will keep that humanity through his resurrection. The fact that God resurrects His humanity and determines to live with us in His creation tells us that we need to look very carefully at God's original intent for humans living inside His creation. So notice a second reason that man is unique. Verse 26, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea 
and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Mankind was created to exercise dominion. Verse 26 refers to what theologians call the dominion mandate, or the creation mandate. And it's not just a suggestion, it is a prediction that God's image bearers will exercise dominion in all His creation. Even in His unfallen state, man's vocation is to exercise dominion. God's original, can I say it this way, great commission was not to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is important, but that's not the original Great Commission. The original Great Commission was to exercise dominion over all the earth. Now, if man is created in God's image, what do we know about God so far in Genesis? Well, we know this. He's a creator. God works. And God even established a pattern of laboring for six days and resting on the seventh. God, of course, was not physically worn out from his labor, since he has no physical body. But God did establish a rhythm of labor and rest, even for an unfallen world. Now, if we are going to reflect the image of God, then we need also to take the raw elements of creation and begin creating also. We have to make culture. Culture is actually not a bad thing. It's a corruptible thing, but it's not inherently a bad thing. We have to build bridges and roads and gardens and dams and farms and houses. We have to make instruments and discover octaves and utilize the raw elements of the world to make art. We thrive by creating music and buildings and laboratories and running scientific experiments to discover and to really utilize that creation that's all around us. We thrive on mapping the skies and cataloging the myriad varieties of life that swim and fly and gallop and slither across our planet. God did not create us to lie around in hammocks all day long in the Garden of Eden. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Here's what God says. Just fill out the earth and subdue the whole earth. Figure out how to live and to thrive all over the planet. Figure out how to domesticate animals and cultivate the earth's plants for food. The fact is God commissioned agriculturists like Ted Whitwell with the first great commission before he commissioned preachers like me with the second. It's true. Ted will tell you that, right, Ted? Now, turn forward to one chapter. And in the second chapter of Genesis, creation is explained again. But this time with an even greater focus on man, the dominion exerciser. And would you just read the very curious words of verses 5 and 6? 
when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land. And notice this, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Well, this passage describes the pre, get this, the pre-fall creation as uncultivated, empty, uninhabited, uncared for. Parts of creation, at least, are void, like a blank canvas waiting for a skilled artist. No laborers are out there working the ground. No man was found. The unfallen earth is eerily quiet and empty. Now, the description that we read in Genesis 1 is general. It describes God's initial creation of everything, including a garden. But here in chapter 2, we actually get a little closer look. Eden, at this point, doesn't cover the whole earth. The chapter actually zooms in on a specific location in that rather uninhabited planet where God creates a gardener and plants a garden in the void. So keep reading. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And notice this. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God does two things. God plants a garden and God creates a gardener. The whole earth at this point is not a proverbial garden of Eden. Rather, at a specific location in the east, did you see that in the east, God deliberately planted a garden. In other words, God is creating a prototype environment here. He gives man an example of what can be done with the raw elements of creation, but God doesn't go out and plant the whole earth. He leaves an enormous work for man to do as he expands from Eden to tame eventually the whole earth. That's his commission. And even in that garden... Man is not supposed to be idle. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to... Children, look at the next two words, to work it. Your parents insist that you need a job, all right? There's a reason for that. To work it and also to keep it. In that beautiful, unfallen place, Adam has a job. Adam has a vocation. God creates the living space, but he leaves its stewardship to Adam. Now, if the rest of the planet looks like verse 5, uncultivated, unstewarded, no man to work the ground yet, and if man is supposed to reproduce himself and eventually fill and subdue all the earth, 
then our original Great Commission was to take Eden and to recreate it to the ends of the earth. The unfallen world would likely have had a variety of climates and temperatures and ecosystems, so we're probably not talking about identical environments, but a great variety of cultures and living spaces are just waiting to be created out there. There's a whole planet just waiting out there for us to tame and subdue, even in an unfallen world. Now, we get a few more clues about man's vocation in this unfallen world, beginning with verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Avilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onk stones are there. This is a very curious reference. Why gold? A reference to good gold and beautiful stones. Well, what is gold good for? Artisans use gold to craft beautiful works of art. In fact, the better the gold, the better the art. The passage actually anticipates the coming of artists. The passage also implies that men will need an understanding of geology, mining, and tool making. To get gold, you have to drill down into the earth quarries. You have to mine out the ore. You have to smelt it down in a crucible. You have to craft it into objects of beauty. And the work is enormously complicated. Did you know that there were two enormous and beautifully crafted pillars that stood before Solomon's temple? They were named Boaz and Jachin. And they actually had no structural architectural purpose. They didn't hold up the roof. They were created merely as objects of beauty. Beauty was an end in itself. Make beautiful things for the glory of God. God does. Think about it. That wild profusion of flowers that just hang off your azalea bushes every spring. They have no survival value for you. You can't eat them. God made them because He loves beauty as an end in itself. Here in this unfallen world, God gave us good gold and precious stones, if for no other reason to make artwork, great works of art and beauty for the glory of God. And notice what else Adam does in this unfallen creation. Look at verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. Now the scientific name for this exercise is taxonomy or cladistics. When Adam named every beast the field, the text probably implies every beast that he discovered. Probably not every beast over all the planet. And I'm saying that because the truth is biologists are still, to this day, engaged in Adam's discipline. Did you know this? They're still laboring at it. They are identifying, categorizing, and naming all sorts of living things in God's creation. Scientists actually believe they've cataloged about 15% of the planet's species. 15%! We've got a long way to go. 
The World Atlas estimates there are some 8.7 million different species on planet Earth. Scientists have cataloged some 350,000 types of beetles. There's still many more, they believe. The number of animals on this planet is estimated to be 20 quintillion. That's 20 billion billion. It's a lot of animals. But the point is, Adam has a job. And that job still occupies us today. The only way Adam could possibly accomplish his vocation and to get all those animals named and make all that beautiful gold and exercise all that dominion over all the earth, there's only one way he's ever going to be able to do any of that. And that is, he must reproduce himself. Otherwise, it's not going to work. In fact, he must reproduce himself millions and billions of times over. But Adam has a problem. He cannot reproduce himself. And that's why chapter 2 concludes with God addressing Adam's problem. It was not good. Even in an unfallen world, it was not good for him to be alone. So God created Eve and God ordained marriage. And in time, their little dominion exercisers, little children, would spread across the creation, creating their own Edens, naming their own beetles, and digging up their own gold for beautiful works of art. Go out and exercise dominion over all the planet. That's not a one-man job. So friends, have we really got the point? When God ordained creation, he ordained vocation. You don't get one without the other. Creation implies vocation. God created us to work in creation. God did not give you a mind and two hands and two feet to be idle. Do something with the body, with the brain that God gave you and with the body that God intends to resurrect. Work, friends, is our default setting. Think of that. Work is our default setting before the curse. That's how we were made, to work and to labor in God's creation. That's your default. That's your, that's your factory setting. Tell that to your lazy kids, right? Now, let's think about the curse. When man fell in the garden, we know that a curse came over all creation. By the way, I wasn't talking. My kids, my kids work. Okay, I wasn't. I'm, I'm going to hear about this when I go home. My daughter was working with me in the yard yesterday. I'm not sure where the boys were. Anyway, God, let's talk about the unfallen creation. I mean, the fallen creation, rather. God, God, God never rescinded the dominion mandate. Do you realize this? When Noah stepped off the ark into a post-apocalyptic world, God repeated the mandate. It is still our first great commission. Why would God say, well, here's my command, but you know what, since you rebelled, okay, it no longer applies. That doesn't make any sense. The fall did not negate the dominion mandate, but it did make it more difficult. We now have to deal with thorns and thistles and the stubborn ground that breaks the plow and ages the farmer. When man tried to ignore the mandate and congregate at Babel, God confounded human language and forced him to exercise global dominion. 
After the curse, a certain futility and hopelessness does indeed accompany our vocation. Look at what God says to Adam, beginning with Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Well, far from abandoning the dominion mandate, God actually forces us to exercise dominion if we want to survive. And the dominion mandate involves futility. No matter how hard we try, the weeds keep winning and men keep dying. And would you observe how God cursed the ground and its produce? And I have made this point recently, but let's just review it very quickly. Where healthy edible plants and fruit trees once grew in abundance, we now find thorns and thistles. Nature is lethal. Uncultivated almonds contain cyanide. You eat uncultivated atoms, you will die. Uncultivated apples are tiny, bitter, and maggot-infested. Lima beans, watermelons, potatoes, eggplants, and cabbages are derived from poisonous ancestor crops. Rye, oats, turnips, radishes, beets, leeks, and lettuce all began as weeds before human cultivation. So too did corn. took thousands of years to get corn to its present state. Every plant and every fruit that you eat has undergone genetic modification through centuries of breeding and selection as ancient farmers exercised dominion all over the planet. That's why we eat today. They figured out how to overcome the thistles and the thorns. Friends, if you plucked your groceries straight from nature, you'd be dead. You would be. You'd be dead. Nevertheless, God told Noah, for as long as the world endures, quote, seed time and harvest will continue. Seed time and harvest imply human industry and ingenuity are part of the Creator's ongoing goodness, but also our responsibility in order to survive. The fact is, we must go out and exercise dominion. When you drive across the Great Plains and you witness those monstrous tractors just tilling up the earth, when you see those monstrous combines just spinning their blades through endless fields of wheat, those diesel engines hauling truckloads of wheat to grain elevators, those enormous machines hurtling down tracks and tugging trainloads of produce into major cities. Friends, all of that is part of the first great commission. Exercise dominion over all the earth. You have to in order to survive. Now turn forward one chapter to Genesis chapter 4. And notice just how quickly work emerges on the planet. Beginning with verse 17, we have a description of Adam's descendants. And they are carrying out the dominion mandate. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. That's the beginning of human civilization. Yes, Cain was a sinner, but he was not evil for building a city. Building cities is normal to human life. 
Verse 20, Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So here's the first reference to animal husbandry. This is an indispensable skill to human survival. Look at verse 21. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And here is your first reference to the gift of music. And every good mathematician knows there is no such thing as music without mathematics. And verse 22 tells us Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Well, friends, packed in that little statement are two assumptions. First, humans are instinctively creative. They must have invented a forge and harnessed the power of fire and discovered a smelting process for metals. And second, humans are practicing science. They must have developed geological expertise to really mine the quarries of the earth, to draw out that bronze and that iron. They must have some knowledge of chemistry to work these elements into these instruments. It's really quite fascinating. There's engineering happening in these verses. Sometimes ambitious Christian apologists like to emphasize that science began in the heart of Western Europe, within Christian Western Europe in the 16th century. Supposedly it began simultaneously with the Protestant Reformation. I say that is utterly false. Science began with Adam and his children. That's where it began. We've been engaged in science from the very beginning. And whether we live in a fallen or unfallen world, vocation, science, art, farming, engineering, music, these are simply inseparable from humanity. We were created to work. To be human is to have a vocation. This is our first great commission. Go out and exercise dominion. And God never relaxed the mandate In fact, the New Testament condemns the man who is idle. Utterly condemns the man who refuses to work. Now, with all that in place, let's turn to Romans chapter 8, because you're probably still wondering, what does this have to do with the resurrection? I'm coming to that. But we really do have to establish work as our default setting. Well, back in Genesis, man is described as God's image bearer. But the concept of the image of God does not turn up again throughout the entire Old Testament. In fact, we don't see it again until Romans chapter 8. Through the entire Old Testament, we have not a single good example of what a true image bearer is supposed to look like because we're all fallen. But look at what Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 29. Here's the concept again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to what? The image of God. The image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The image of the Son is indeed the image of God because Jesus is God. Our destiny is to be restored into the image of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does that look like? And the answer is, you have to read the resurrection accounts. 
That's, that's where the whole story is going. Jesus resurrected bodily. And because Jesus resurrected bodily, He is the first fruits of that whole resurrected creation to come. Look at Jesus. So in that context, look back at verse 19. Will read these verses this morning. He didn't know that I was going to be coming back to him. We don't often compare notes, but this is really great. Look at this, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation all around us was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. What is that? The redemption of our bodies. So Paul is here describing our current situation. The creation all around us is still fallen and broken. But its destiny is restoration, not obliteration. That's crucial. So let me say it again. Its destiny is restoration, not obliteration. I pointed out last week that Christians often think backwards about the new creation to come, as if it's something that we're waiting for, when in fact Paul says the whole creation is really waiting on us. We're the problem. We are the ones that sinned against God. We are the ones that introduced the curse. We are the ones that need to be restored into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And then and only then will God lift the curse from his creation. So then what does this mean for our vocations as we live in this fallen creation, anticipating the new creation to come? Well, would you just keep two truths in mind? First of all, again, we were created to work. Before the curse, our first great commission was to exercise dominion over all the earth. And God is going to restore our factory settings. That's what the gospel does. It rolls back the curse. Through the atonement that Christ made on the cross, through his resurrection, our sins are forgiven, they are pardoned, we are resurrected to new life. We are rolled back to that unfallen condition God is going to, in fact, restore us to the image of a perfect human being, the Lord Jesus Christ, inside a restored creation. And secondly, if God is going to restore us into the image and likeness of Jesus, that's our destiny, then we should look at the example that Jesus set for us concerning how to live in a world that's still broken because Jesus did that, right? Jesus showed us how to live in a broken world. So if we're going to be resurrected in the Christ-likeness, shouldn't we start the process now? Shouldn't we participate in this whole restoration project with Christ? So in that context, let's think about Jesus' labors before his cross, in light of verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Have you ever thought about the futility of Christ's labors? Maybe that bothers you even to speak that way. The futility of Christ's labors? 
Well, in one sense, a great deal of what Jesus did was futile because it was in the old world. Think about it. Jesus was a healer. He went everywhere reversing the curse. He restored the withered arm. He raised the lame. He opened the eyes of the blind. Jesus also addressed the problem of human hunger, multiplying loaves to feed thousands. He filled the disciples' nets with fish to feed their families and pay off their creditors. Jesus facilitated transportation, ferrying his disciples safely through the storms of Gennesaret. And just as God gave us a prototype environment back there in Eden, so Jesus modeled for us how to labor against the curse and restore the creation to its original goodness. Jesus' miracles, friends, I've said this before, were very intentional. They rolled back the curse and they restored goodness to creation. Jesus' miracles were not arbitrary feats of power. He doesn't go around turning people into toes or waving around a magic wand and disappearing in a puff of smoke. His miracles are restorative. He heals the broken creation. Nevertheless, there's a certain futility in his miracles. Hunger returned when famines withered the fields. New storms just barreled down in the Sea of Galilee. The eyes of the blind just closed again in the grave. The mute tongue was silenced in the tomb. The curse just came rolling back over everything. Jesus, nevertheless, modeled for us how to labor against the fall with hope that a new creation is coming. And where does that hope come from? And the answer is, Jesus performed one final miracle that was categorically different from every other miracle. The four Gospels come to a crescendo with one final miracle that pointed the way forward through this creation right into the next. Jesus resurrected his humanity from the grave. And every previous miracle was a miracle of the old creation. And the curse always came rolling back. The resurrection was the first miracle of the new creation. It was the first fruits of the new harvest, the first fruits of the new world to come. And the curse, in fact, cannot roll back the resurrection because the resurrection just shattered the power of the curse. It's over. The curse will not win. Like a mighty hinge right there at the center of human history, the death and the resurrection of Jesus destroy the tyranny of the curse and the old creation. And the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as I mentioned last week, just launched Christ's great restoration project, a project that, as I showed you last week, we participate in. He came at the middle of human history, not the end, so we can participate with him in the project. The new creation, friends, doesn't begin in the future. It was launched 2,000 years ago. And we are pointing people ahead to that new creation to come. Now, friends, if indeed there was no resurrection, then Jesus' miracles were futile. They provided temporary relief from a curse that finally wins. Think of that. But if Jesus was raised in all his miracles, his vocation of healing and feeding and rolling back the curse and his atoning death for our sins has meaning, direction, and purpose. If the resurrection is true, all that has meaning. His labors just point ahead to the great and final restoration to come. Likewise, friends, when you have no hope of overcoming the curse... Your life is indeed absurd. Your vocations are, in fact, worthless. 
There's no hope in the end. The preeminent philosopher Bertrand Russell was a militant atheist, a vehement opponent of the Christian faith. In fact, he wrote a whole essay, a very famous essay called Why I'm Not a Christian. But listen to what he said. No fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. The whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. That is a world without Easter. But Easter guarantees that our labors are not in vain. Our labors are not destined for destruction, the heat death of the universe. Even the futility of our vocations find meaning and hope in the resurrection. It's true, futility is inherent in medicine. Every patient you treat will end up dying. Futility is inherent in building, engineering, construction. The building will fall apart. The car will rust. The ceiling will leak. Futility is inherent in farming. The food is consumed. The winter comes. The crops die. Futility is part of sports. You will age. Your body will decline. Futility is in the home. You just did the laundry. And there's a mountain of laundry again. Where did it all come from? And a pile of dishes and weeds and mold and broken appliances. Friends, there will always be more walls to paint and papers to grade and products to finish and diapers to change and meetings to attend. Of course, in the resurrection, there will be no meetings to attend unless you believe in purgatory. Friends, did you know that futility... Sorry. I've been to so many meetings this last month, it's driving me nuts. I think I can speak for every preacher that there is a kind of futility even in preaching... I mean, you work on a sermon all week long and people who really need to hear it don't even show up. It's like, what's up with that? I mean, you feel it. You really do. There's a certain futility to everything we do. You think you're going to go to the ministry and you're going to get rid of all the futility. No, you feel that way all the time. But the question is, is futility the ultimate destiny of the universe? Is that where it's all headed? Easter, my friend, says No. Jesus never stopped laboring against the curse. He continued healing people all the way down to his final Passover in Jerusalem. And in fact, he entrusted that healing ministry to his disciples. So why did Jesus just go right on laboring against the curse? Well, it's because Jesus could see right to the curse to the new creation to come. And Jesus promised that when he entered the new creation, after just hollowing out his tomb, he would send his spirit to awaken us to new life in Christ. The same Spirit, friends, who hovered over that original creation. That's in Genesis 1. The Spirit hovered over that creation. That same Spirit who overshadowed the virgin womb. That same Spirit who empowered Jesus at His baptism. That Spirit is given liberally to us. He possesses us and restores us for the new creation. So friends, don't labor as if it's all meaningless in the end. And the goal of life is just to escape creation. Labor with the Spirit, knowing that all creation will be restored. 
Go into the operating room and resist the curse. Go into your children's bedroom and restore relationships between warring children. Go into the field and plant your crops and feed those still hungry on the Galilean hillside. Listen to what Psalm 104 says. The Spirit comes along and He renews the face of the ground. The Spirit works in conjunction with the farmer, sending the water to renew the face of the ground. Go into the lab and design a better engine to survive the storm and protect the lives of hundreds of passengers. Go into the office and help people invest their monies and overcome the poverty of the curse. Jesus befriended the poor. Go into the kitchen in the Spirit and prepare your loaves and your fish as if you're setting the table for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Go into the studio with the Spirit and create great works of artistic beauty and great imagination. And I wonder, is that really some sort of far-fetched application? Not at all. Listen to what God told Moses in Exodus 31 and verse 2. See, I have called by name Bezalel, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise. Get this, there's the Spirit, he's filling him, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. Can the Spirit equip you to produce beauty, to paint, to design interiors, to design architectural masterpieces? Absolutely. The Spirit can equip you in every craft. Paul told the Ephesians, the Spirit energizes your music. Now friends, let's just connect these two ideas, and I'm almost done. The same Spirit who energized Bezalel is the same Spirit who fuels and energizes the Great Commission that Jesus gave at the end of Matthew. Our first Great Commission was to exercise dominion over all the earth. And the Spirit energizes that commission. And our second Great Commission is to preach the gospel over all the earth. And the Spirit energizes that commission. These commissions are not mutually exclusive. I think we often think of them that way. There's my job, and then there's like my gospel calling. Don't think of it that way. They are both energized by the same Spirit. Don't view your job as drudgery. To repeat, don't view your vocation as a kind of necessary evil to survive on a fallen planet while earning some money to put in the offering plate as if that's the real work. No, your vocation is also your commission. Your vocation is the place where your two spirit-filled commissions come together. A good friend of mine is a chemist, and he once summarized for me his life's calling in a single sentence. And his single sentence is precisely the application of this whole sermon. Here's what he said to me. God called me to make disciples in the world of chemistry. Precisely. He just harmonized the dominion mandate and the creation mandate. When the Spirit fills you, your vocation becomes a means of both exercising dominion and making disciples. Friends, where are all the potential disciples? Well, they're out there exercising dominion in the laboratory, in the office, in the classroom, in the cockpit, in the gas station, on the construction site. That's where they are. They're out there pursuing vocations in every climate and country and tribe. They're out there exercising dominion in a thousand global tongues. They're out there exercising dominion in deserts, mountains, valleys, cities, villages, and forests. Adam's descendants, if you think about it, have really done an astonishing deed. They've been astonishingly successful in just exercising dominion all over the planet. Everywhere you go, there's human beings living everywhere, right? 
But now we come along as children of the second Adam. And we have a long way to go still as we participate with Christ in his second great commission of recovering all those image bearers out there for his glory.